And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Jack, and I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Our last episode, we took a look at episodes 36 and 37 of the classic Tsuburaya series Ultraman, featuring the monsters Zaragas and Geronimon, and of course Geronimon brought a few friends along with him. Today we are going to be changing tack a little bit, and we are going to be taking a look at a Chinese modern giant monster film, taking a look at the movie Snow Monster. Before we get to that, we do have some news to cover, so let's get right into it. Godzilla Minus One, you knew this was going to be the top story, has become a rampaging success all over the globe. The film has continued to gain theatrical extensions here in the United States and has opened elsewhere around the world, at the same time continuing to rack up critical praise. Now, as of this recording, Minus One stands at a U.S. domestic gross of just at $50 million, with international grosses above $41 million, according to Box Office Mojo, which is slightly behind on reporting Japanese and other international box office. And this puts the film at above $90 million, which is an incredible accomplishment for a film which was predicted to have a relatively short U.S. run and then move on. Right now, they're talking about this thing reaching 100 million, which is unheard of. Now, in addition, Toho has announced the black and white version of the film, Godzilla minus one slash C. I'm guessing that's supposed to be divide by C. I've also heard it called minus one minus C, but it really looks like a divide by on the poster. That will also get some type of theatrical release. Similar to what was done for the black and chrome version of Mad Max Fury Road several years back. Now, just to put some of these numbers into perspective, Minus One had the best debut ever in the United States for a Japanese language film, and it is the highest grossing Japanese movie in U.S. history. Okay, live action movie, I should say. The highest grossing live action Japanese movie in U.S. history. That's incredible. Now, the film currently has the sixth highest gross in the U.S. for a foreign language film of all time, passing Pan's Labyrinth and within reach of the films Parasite and Hero. All of this comes with a 98% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which all of you know I personally am not interested in. But in this case, it's illustrative of the fact that the film is popular both with viewers and critics, which you know a genre film is not always the case. The rampage just keeps on going, so who knows where it'll end. No official word yet on home media releases, but for now, I'm just enjoying the ride for as long as it lasts. In MonsterVerse news, the trailer for Godzilla x Kong, The New Empire, dropped last month, ironically coming out the same weekend that Minus One began its U.S. theatrical run. So, this trailer got a lot of chatter, and not all of it good. The main thing which I've seen folks vetching about online is that Godzilla has what looks to be bright pink spines, which really seem to set some people off. 
Personally, this did not bother me, because if nothing else, it reminded me of Godzilla 2000, but, you know, Shin Godzilla as well, so, you know. Another thing I've heard complaints about were where Godzilla and Kong were charging at the camera like buddies in an action movie. I'm not sure why this ticked people off, but hey, someone once told me that I like everything, so what do I know? Be that as it may, there's a lot of neat and unusual stuff in this trailer involving the Hollow Earth, which I predicted a couple of years ago that they were going to lean heavy on Hollow Earth, and I'm glad to see that appears to be the case. An additional member of Kong's species, including a juvenile giant ape, which looks like they will be putting Little G from Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla on notice when it comes to the cuteness factor. The other piece which stuck out to me was Kong wearing a mechanical glove, which would suggest that Kong will be digging. Dig Kong! Dig! I've been avoiding spoilers as much as I possibly can for this film, as I find that helps me enjoy a film when I do see it. This is a challenge here, as the merchandise, including toys, have started coming out seemingly in mass. There are evidently several other monsters in the toy merchandise, so tread lightly if you are like me avoiding spoilers. Now, originally Godzilla X-Kong was set to be released on April 12th, but just before I wrote this, Warner Brothers shuffled the schedule around, and the film is now set to be released in the U.S. on March 29th. Personally, I am cool with the March release date because you will recall that Godzilla vs. Kong came out in March and did well at the box office, so I have high hopes for Godzilla X-Kong as well. So that's all the news I've got. If you've got anything that you think uh, will fit the news here at Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and send it in to me, Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to give you a hat tip here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be covering Snow Monster right here on Earth Destruction Directive. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Wars podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare Road Warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like conventions or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats! Zombie robots! Day-walking vampires! Gargoyle armies! And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Snow Monster! Known in uh, Mandarin as Da Zhu Guai, aka Snow Monster vs. Ice Shark in some releases, was released in China on September 10th, 2019, evidently going direct to streaming at that time. The film made its way over to the US for streaming on November 12th, 2021, and came to DVD a year later. So two writers are credited. The first is Xing Fang Zhang, 
whose other credits include other genre films such as Snake 2, Snake 3, and a picture called Restart the Earth, which has a rather intriguing description. In order to combat desertification, humans have developed drugs that promote the accelerated reproduction of plant cells, but they have accidentally liberated the stress systems of plants and awakened plant emotions. Plant emotions! Huh! The other writer credited is Pionjia Leng, but this film is their only credit that I could find. Our director is Huang He, who, like Zhang, has a few other genre credits, including what looks like a family fantasy film called Underground Monster, that looks pretty interesting, and a Chinese historical fantasy epic entitled Di Ranjai and the Flying Demon Head. You know, it's funny because we get all these uh, Japanese cultural things over here in the U.S. between you know, the import of, of various anime and tokusatsu and all that. And we do get Asia files, but sometimes there are some things that happen as far as in Chinese film and Chinese pop culture that it just sounds so crazy, but we just never see them over here. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll see some more of these later. I don't know. Uh, so our synopsis here, this is uh, actually this is my synopsis. I couldn't find a real good synopsis for this film. So this is my take on it. And it goes a little something like this. Shen Jian is leading a team from Hongjin Research into a mysterious snowy area near the Arctic. The expedition finds strange geomagnetic readings, which are theorized to create biogenetic changes in animal life. Shen is being monitored by the team back at Hongjin, including the chairman, who happens to be her father, when something large and hairy appears and wrecks their snowcat, sending it tumbling down a mountainside, cutting off all communication. Desperate to recover Shen, Hong Jin sends Wen Kai to recruit Ren, a relic hunter slash explorer slash adventurer who also happens to be Shen's ex. Ren is disinterested in helping Hong Jin, but eventually softens when he learns that Shen is in trouble. Hong Jin assembles a team consisting of Ren, Wen Kai, Shen's uncle, Dr. Lin, a geneticist, and a team of mercenaries led by the tough guy, Tyson. Getting to the last known location of the snowcat proves a challenge, as Ren leads the team to a volcanic area which had similar geomagnetic readings to what the team found when they were lost. The site is dotted with ruins, and by manipulating the stone structures, Ren is able to open a hole in the earth, into which the team is promptly swallowed. Moving forward, the team discovers skeletons and other remains, and soon enough find the cause. Vicious, toothy birds who resemble oversized crows mixed with lizards. The team is attacked by the flock and several members are killed, but Ren determines that they are sound hunters and orders everyone to be quiet. The flock quiets down and the team begins to sneak out, until Wenkai's phone alarm goes off, waking the flock again. The team runs for what appears to be an exit as Ren tosses an explosive to cover their escape from the monster birds. As they leave the cavern, the team finds themselves in a snowy wasteland. Seems that the cavern was a pathway into this mysterious area. Soon, the team finds evidence of the wrecked snowcat, including a video camera which shows that Shen survived the initial crash. The investigation is cut short, however, by the sudden and deadly appearance of a monstrous shark which is swimming through the snow. The giant shark is able to leap into the air and attack the team, taking down several mercenaries whose weapons do not seem to have any effect. Suddenly, the ground shakes and a massive shaggy and horned humanoid creature appears. The giant yeti picks up the shark like a man holding a fish and bashes it into the ground, repeating it 
repeatedly, excuse me, killing it. Staring in awe, things go south quickly when a mercenary accidentally fires around, striking the Yeti. In rage, the beast roars in defiance and the team opens fire. The Yeti smashes the earth with its fists, creating an avalanche which envelops the team. Ren awakens to find himself and the other members of the team, including Wen Kai, tied up on a dais surrounded by what looks to be a primitive tribe. As one of the elders cuts each member of the team on the ankle, Ren frees himself and makes his move, holding the elder at knife point. Ren is attacked by the warrior Kaya, and she is able to disarm him. Things look grim until Shen shows up alive and well. Shen tells Ren that the tribe found her, the only survivor of her expedition, and was trying to help his team as well with a bloodletting. The ancient people worship the Yeti, and the high priestess can communicate with the beast. As Ren and Shen start to reconnect, Ren learns that Dr. Lin and the mercenaries are still missing. We catch up with Dr. Lin and the mercenaries when the doctor reveals that he is actually an agent for a rival company, the Middle East Shark Group? That's what he says the name of the group is, I'm just saying. Here on a secret mission to retrieve DNA from the Yeti. Dr. Lin recruits the mercenaries to his side and they set off to hunt down their prey. Back with the tribe, Ren, Shen, and the rest of the team are taken to a cliff face where the priestess and the rest of the tribe communes with the Yeti. The ceremony is interrupted by the arrival of Dr. Lin and the mercenaries who kill one of the elders and abscond with Shen, Kaya, and the priestess intending to have her lead them to the Yeti's stomping grounds. The priestess, however, leads them to the territory of the Ice Sharks and the predators attack the mercenaries hungrily. Surviving the attack, Dr. Lin shoots the priestess after the Yeti arrives on the scene, starting another battle. Ren and Wen Kai arrive just in time for a trio of high-tech fighter jets to arrive, called in by Dr. Lin. The jets buffet the Yeti with sonic weapons, and the mercenaries seemingly have the heroes on the back foot. But thanks to an assist from Wen Kai, Kaya is able to kill the leader of the mercenaries, and Ren shoots down one of the jets, allowing the Yeti to take out the other two. Dr. Lin, injured by jet shrapnel, tries one last attempt to kill the Yeti with a high-powered rifle, but is smashed into the ground by the beast. The survivors bid farewell to the tribe, with Kaya now the priestess, though Ren and Shin realize the harm they have brought upon the peaceful natives by their presence. Back at Hongjin, Shen is reunited with her father, but the reunion is cut short when one of the technicians discovers a strange reading on his monitor, and we see what appears to be a giant snake lurking in the rainforest. So this was something of a change of pace for this show, but still features a strange hidden land, native peoples, a monster god, and greedy capitalists. So is it really all that different? Let's get into the notes. First off, I need to give a shout out to Thomas DJ of the Octodonagonagon, I can never say that, Theater Works, and the Honeywell Experiment, as uh, Thomas was the one who had actually suggested this movie as a good candidate for the show. I had heard of some of these Chinese monster films previously, including seeing the covers in Walmart or online, but I had not actually watched any of them. So thank you, Thomas, for kindling an interest in this film specifically and into me learning more about this film and others like it. So big shout out to Thomas. Please go check out the Octodecagonagon Theater Works and uh, some really cool um, audio drama work that uh, Thomas has, uh, produces. Now, it's difficult to find English language information about this film, and most of the credits, including the production company logos, are in Mandarin. I can say that the film was distributed by Youku, one of China's top video and streaming platforms, and it was through their English YouTube channel that I watched this film. 
Yuku has been involved in self-produced content going back to the mid-2010s, and these genre films seem to be a staple for them, again, based on what I can locate in English. Their YouTube channel has a wide range of creature features streaming, including what appears to be giant crocodiles, land sharks, giant swarms of bees, giant lizards, giant octopi, giant roaches, a hydra, and others. It seems that, much like here in the West, cheaply made genre content is very useful in China for providing volume on streaming platforms, I imagine again, due to their low cost and relatively strong return on investment. As an aside, if you're interested in Chinese dramas, this is the YouTube channel for you. There appears to be a few dozen different series across various genres, all of them English subtitled and arranged into playlists. So I'm going to try and post a link in the notes if you want to check that out. Given this background, and the fact that the film is readily available for streaming here in the West, I think it is fair to compare it against Western cheapy creature features. The most well-known of these outfits is The Asylum. You may remember that we did touch on The Asylum last year in Gaiden 32 with their mockbuster Ape vs. Monster, and, despite my better judgment, I do plan on having another Asylum film here in the future. But go on to any of the free ad-supporting streaming services, such as Tubi or Pluto, or dig into even the paid services like Paramount Plus and Peacock, and you will find dozens of cheap independent horror films of every size and shape and color, including creature features. Now, compared to those films, of which I've watched my fair share, I do have to say that Snow Monster is actually a touch better made. The film is shot well and looks legitimately nice for the most part. It lacks the shot-on-digital-video feel, which hobbles a lot of these features, making them look cheaper than they probably were. Even, air quotes up to the mic, big independent outfits like Full Moon suffers with the digital video look, which is distressing given Full Moon's OG output always looking sharp, even when the content itself was questionable, but that's a whole other can of worms. So straight out, even watching on a computer monitor, and not a particularly high-end one, Snow Monster looks more like a legit movie than many other cheap modern monster movies. The script is reasonable and straightforward, but not exactly creative. It's a standard plot of an expedition going into the mysterious lost world, finding a sheltered civilization of native peoples, encountering their benevolent monster god, and then bringing strife to the land by humanity's greed and capitalistic urges. Perhaps I'm being too lenient, but I don't have too much of an issue with using a stock story for a film like this. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, if you're going to rip something off, ripping off a tried-and-true classic is a fair approach. I must also add that adding in a credit scene teaser for the sequel, which also ties it to another series of films, specifically the series Snake, of which there are three entries, that's a total power, power move right there. It amused me greatly, even if that teased film has yet to materialize. The acting's harder to gauge, being as I do not speak the native language. The actors seem to be avoiding too many hammy tendencies, except for our comedy character of Wen Kai, which speaks in part also to the characters. Like our story, the characters who populate the film are all stock characters themselves. The roguish explorer, the brainy female scientist, the fat comic relief, the noble savage girl, the greedy capitalist, the ruthless mercenary. There's not much we have not seen before in this film, which again is not atypical, and in fact expected for the most part in this type of film. Now, I must say that the special effects are where this film really separates itself from the pack a little bit. Our titular snow monster is primarily rendered through CGI, 
although evidently there is some submation mixed in there as well. And the CGI is actually not bad at all, much better than we saw in Ape vs. Monster, for example. The monster is well-rendered, covered in white fur, not unlike the Ultra Monster Woo. It helps that most of the scenes involve heavy snow cover, which obscures things slightly. But on the whole, I was impressed with how the Yeti was brought to life. Similarly, the Ice Shark... God bless cheap shark monsters. You do, you do yeoman's work, man. But the Ice Shark looks as good, if not better, than most CGI sharks. Now, of which there are, I admit, many from which to choose. So there's a lot of CGI sharks out there, but he, he looks fine. Both the Yeti and the shark are well-designed, they move well. Both avoid the sort of PlayStation 3 cutscene sort of skin textures, which seem to plague these types of movies. The monster crows seem to have wandered into this movie from some type of subterranean horror show, but they're suitably creepy in their scene, and they, they look good. The real issue here, then, is that there's just not much to the movie. It plays itself out in 82 minutes without much surprise or fanfare. It's not overly ambitious, nor creative in how the story is told, seemingly being more interested in just telling that story from Act 1 to Act 2 to Act 3 in an efficient manner and simply moving along. It doesn't bog down, which is good, but at the same time it also glosses over story elements. How does this tribe survive without seemingly any food supply or source of fuel for fires? How did the initial expedition find the hidden land? Why didn't the second expedition just follow that same route? How do the fighter jets show up if the location is so hidden? We don't even get lip service answers to these questions. Instead, things simply happen, and we're asked to accept them and follow along. These leaps of logic start to pile up at, at the end, at which point I was lulled into a state of disbelief and just enjoyed the film as it was. Now, your mileage, of course, may vary on that front. Overall, Snow Monster, it's not bad for a cheapie. It does a decent job of showing us rather than telling us, unlike a lot of other films of its type. The story's not bad, despite being fairly basic, and the special effects are decent. It's not particularly memorable, and the characters are all broad archetypes, but given the choice between this film and typical domestic fare from outfits like The Asylum or otherwise populating discount DVD bins or online free streaming services, it's a very passable way to spend a little under an hour and a half probably about 90 minutes with the ads on whatever streaming service you're watching it on. Now, if you would like to own Snow Monster, you can buy or rent the film on Prime Video on Amazon. Uh, the DVD is not listed on Amazon that I can find, but you can find it on other online retailers. I think I found it at Target and a few other sites like that that would get it through an affiliate. Um, as I said, this film is streaming for free on Yuku's English language uh, YouTube channel to which I said I will put a link in the show notes if you want to check it out there. Uh, it's also, I believe, available on Tubi and Pluto. Uh, this is one, if you put it into your uh, Google machine, you'll be able to find it streaming with relative ease. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it's out there for you to consume. So now I throw it to you, the listeners. What do you think? Have any of you watched Snow Monster or maybe some of these other uh, Chinese cheap creature features? What do you think? Do you like uh, you know, kind of uh, taking things in different directions and you know, using kind of old tried-and-true story methods and making new ones out of it? How do you think they compare to films produced here in the West? Write me in and we can talk about it. Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. Love to hear from you. All right, that is all I've got. I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with some listener feedback right here on Earth Destruction Directive. All right, Jimmy, before you fire up Ubermogra's engines and fly to our first destination, we need to record a promo. Jimmy? Jimmy? Jimmy! 
What do you mean, busy? With me. Oh, good Godzilla. Kaguya, please stop distracting my intrepid producer. But he is educating me on what it means to be human. But you're a zillion, not a... Oh, never mind. I'm not opening that can of kaiju worms. You better switch to your new mic for the season premiere, Jimmy, because the droid voice is getting old. I think it's sexy. This is why tongue biting has become my new hobby. Anyway, I've got a script right here. Let's record. <clears throat> Hello, Kaiju lovers! This is Nate March and coming to you live from our mobile studio in Ubermogura because for season four, MIFV is going international. Yes, with the all-American kaiju behind us, we're globetrotting because, as Jonah Heston rapped, every country has a monster. We'll be visiting places like Hong Kong, South Korea, and Denmark and see that, unlike what some may say, kaiju aren't only Japanese. I've selected over a dozen films for the world tour, ranging from classics new and old like The Host and Gorgo, to infamous cult classics like Super Inframan and Reptilicus. The guest list includes newcomers like Tommy Trembath of Giant Size Violence and returning favorites like John LeMay, Daniel DeManna, and Neil Reby. But don't worry, Godzilla Redux will continue with us nearly finishing the Showa series this season. And so will our Patreon-sponsored Wildcard episodes, which are truly eclectic this year. Righto, Jimmy. This season, we're celebrating our 100th episode. And boy, howdy, do we have some big plans for that milestone. Can I be in it? We'll talk, Kaguya. Episodes will alternate between a full-length film discussion with the tourists centered on our main theme and another one that's part of our ongoing sub-themes. But you'll also hear special bonus episodes this season that will focus on even more international kaiju films. It is! So join me and the intrepid Jimmy from NASA. And his girlfriend, Kaguya. Sure. For a travelogue of Tremendous Titans starting next week. Until then, Tatsien's Anyong and goodbye. All right, Jimmy, let's get going so we... Oh, good grief. Let her breathe, man. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it is time for a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to get into the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook, on Twitter, or on a YouTube channel. Just listen to the outro to the show, and we'll give you all that information. Our email today comes from... My friend and yours, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, Gene Hendricks, from the Hammer Strikes and Two True Freaks. And Gene writes in with the subject Goji Comics question. Hiya, Luke. Hiya, Gene. As you're in search of feedback, I thought I'd ask you a general question based on your latest episode on the Godzilla Oblivion series. When looking at Godzilla or other giant monster comics, what is your ideal setup? How much or little does the monster in question need to be the protagonist? How much human interaction slash presence is necessary? Are the monsters fantastic enough? Or should there be something else? Interdimensional portals, for example, in addition. Should it be a limited or ongoing series? 
Lots to chew on there, I know, but you've reviewed so many comic series to this point that I thought you might have formulated some of these answers already. Keep them stomping, Gene. I said, The Hammer Strikes, The Hammer Podcast, Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, um, all sorts of stuff that uh, Gene is involved with. So, Gene, first off, thank you very much for your email. It's a good question, you know, because we've covered a lot of comics. Like you said, we covered all of the um, Marvel Comics, Shogun Warriors, and Godzilla. We've covered many of the IDW uh, Godzilla series. We actually covered a little bit their first series, which I did not like at all. Their second series was much better. Their third one, um, which is Kingdom of Monsters, we have not gotten to yet, but that one was another one that ran for like 25 issues, a, a long ongoing. And of course, plenty of miniseries and one-shots. And I think it's, you know, it's it's an it, you pose an interesting question. Does the monster need to be the protagonist or do we want humans to be the protagonist and identification uh, characters? I think it can work both ways. Generally, I've liked the ones where we've had a human story, much like we see with the films, right? That there is this this kind of push and pull between the fans that don't want to hear about humans and only want to see the monsters and the ones that think and believe truly that the humans is what drive the stories and the monsters are characters in part of that human drama. I think it works both ways. Um, you know, the, the Marvel Godzilla series did not have the strongest human heroes. And, you know, there, there was, um, you know, Rob Takaguchi was really kind of annoying. Um, but, uh, but there was some good stuff. Now there has been some series that have had really well done and well executed human plots. Uh, Godzilla, the half century war by James Stokoe immediately comes to mind where the, the, the story of our hero and his, you know, 50 year fight against Godzilla was just engaging. Right. And you could have done that story with a different monster, an original monster, and it would still have been just as compelling a story. Right. Uh, so I, I think it does. I think you do need some level of humans to, to drive it and push it because we've had series where it's just monsters. And I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but like Godzilla and hell, Godzilla and hell was a cool series, but it was variable, right? It can be tough to have a series where we don't have humans to help drive the story along. Right. So it really relies on the strength of not just the writer, but the artist to communicate the story through the visual aspects of the art. Uh, we've had a few of the IDW one shots that, there's one that jumps to mind. I haven't covered it on the show, but it's the Godzilla Rivals Space Godzilla, where all of the air quotes up to the mic human characters are actually aliens. And the entire book is written with the alien language not translated. And I found that just really difficult to get into. Like it, it was just, I, I got it. I got it. But it's like, it just didn't grab me. And we've seen that a few times with these IDW one shots where the, the human story is just perfunctory and it's like, okay, this is an excuse to get these characters together or this is an excuse to have these monsters fight. And that's fine. That's fine. But you know, it doesn't really stick with you. Right. The same way that again, something like half century war does. Now, I'm not saying it just because we've got a human story that makes it automatically great, but I think that there is something to be said for, if you can write compelling human stories around the monsters and you've got that push and pull again, I always look back, you know, my favorite, of the Showa films of the sequels are, you know, Gator the Three-Headed Monster and Monster Zero. 
Both of those films, I think, have a very strong balance between the human story and the monster story, where there is give and take, and what happens in the human story impacts the monster story, and what happens in the monster story impacts the human story. And that's like my favorite, right? That's my favorite type of setup. So anything that can emulate that, I think, is is really going to hit that sweet spot for me, right? Um, you talk about you know, are the monsters fantastic enough? Should there be something else? I think there's room for both. There are some of the more, again, some of the more memorable ones are not just monsters on the loose. Um, the Marvel Godzilla where he shrunk down, right? That led to some very memorable issues. Not just the one where he's um, the rat size in the sewers, but the one fighting the Fantastic Four in the American Museum of Natural History. That's a, a classic as far as I'm concerned, right? And that was using a fantastical element. Um, you can get a lot of mileage, I think, out of monsters on the loose. I think eventually you you do need to continually rethink the setting. Uh, you can't have Godzilla just attack a major city every um, every issue. That eventually starts to become kind of old hat, right? So I think if you're having an ongoing series, which kind of gets into your other question, you need to introduce those fantastical elements to kind of keep the plots fresh, right? Uh, another one, the Marvel Godzilla, when they sent him back in time and had him eat Devil Dinosaur, which I thought was brilliant, right? Man, I would have loved to see Jack Kirby draw that, but that's, again, that's neither here nor there. Um, so that, that I think is, is a, you know, I think you need those fantastical elements if you're doing the ongoing. On a limited series, again, I think the fantastical elements make a lot of sense because you've got a finite story, right? And so that's the, that's like the elevator pitch. Oblivion is a good example. It's like the elevator pitch is, oh, there's no monsters in our world, but these interdimensional portals bring all these giant kaiju to our planet, right? So that's that, that grabs you right there. Godzilla and Hell, another good one where, it's like, it's, it's literally the one, it's Godzilla in hell. And that's it. That's the entire pitch, right? That's not necessarily um, something you could do on film because it's such a fantastical concept, right? And I always, um, I think it was Roy Thomas said this when talking about the Kree Skrull War, that one of the, always the strengths of comics is that there's no, it's the same budget whether you're drawing Peter and Mary Jane talking in Peter's bedroom, or you're drawing an epic scale cosmic battle with dozens of characters. It costs the same amount to draw and print that comic, right? So I think the strength of comics is to do some of these, um, you know, more out there fantastical concepts. Uh, so I, I think that that is, again, if you're going to do the ongoing if, or even with the miniseries, I think you need something like that as a hook uh, to really draw people in and create memorable stories. So um, you know, uh, that's, that's just my take. I'm, I'm curious on what other folks think. How do you like your giant monster comics? Do you want more or less humanity? Do you want more monsters and less humanity? Do you want a, a balance? Do you like them a bit more monster on the loose or a bit more kind of out there fantastical? I'd love to hear some feedback on this. So, uh, great series of questions, Gene. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Yahoo Easier for me to say. Listeners, send in your thoughts because I'd love to have this discussion continue on because to me, this is this is really good stuff. So thank you very much for writing, Gene, with the thoughtful question. I very much appreciate it. And again, if you all want to get in touch with me for anything, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or X, I guess we're supposed to call it, or, or YouTube. Very much appreciated. Speaking of social media... Likes, shares, reposts, thumbs ups, all that good stuff for the last couple episodes came from uh, the Telltale Mind, the Fan Holes podcast, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, History of Comic Con Film, that's Derek, Derek WC of the Fan Holes, 
the two true freaks podcast the monster island film vault podcast bill at spy vinyl bro rad mr lomax bob hansen brian severe billy d of the magazines and monsters podcast my brother jason jacanetti chuck rodriguez my good friend adam tebow tim elliott and christopher j warden thank you very much everyone for all of that support and signal boosting on social media. I say it every time, and once it stops being true, I'll stop saying it, I promise. But podcasts are a labor of love and everything that you can do to get word out and spread the word about the podcast you enjoy, whether it's Earth Destruction Directive or other ones, I'm not I'm not greedy, uh, is very much appreciated, and it means a lot to the creators, and it means a lot to me specifically. So thank you very much for that. I can, of course, take this opportunity to remind everyone that here in 2024, Earth Destruction Directive is still for everyone. We're not a gatekeeping show. We're a show for the fans, by the fans. If you want to be involved in the Godzilla fandom, you are welcome to interact with the show in any way that you feel comfortable. Maybe you got taken to a screening of Godzilla Minus One and you just had your mind just... You might, you might want to put on a helmet sort of situation. Uh, you know, and you're brand new to the genre, you're welcome. Maybe you're just hyped up for uh, Godzilla X-Kong and you're just new and trying to dip your toe in, you're welcome to come on here. You know, all are in fact welcome. Uh, I do want to say that I had intended to get a Christmas episode out in 2023 where we normally do the end of the year. It didn't happen for various reasons. So hope everyone had a good holiday season. Everyone stayed safe uh, over New Year's and all that. You know, we are a safety first and a safety conscious podcast here in our destruction directive. So that said, we also always have to look forward. And what's coming next? Well, we're going to be shifting from the uh, moving image to the still image. We're going back to comics. We're going to be taking a look at Mystery of Ultra 7 from Marvel Comics. This is the third and as of right now, final miniseries for the Super Raya Ultra series as published with their license by Marvel Comics. This follows on from Rise of Ultraman and, Tr and Trials of Ultraman which we covered in the last couple of years. I'm very much excited to read this. I've had this sitting on my uh, nightstand for a few months. I've not actually read it, so it's going to be a surprise to me. Uh, I believe it's on Hoopla if you want to check it out. I know the other two are on Hoopla, and I think this one is too, if you want to check it out beforehand. But that is what I'm going to do. I am sure we will have more news on the continued success of Godzilla Minus One. We'll also be running up right, uh, bringing right into the, the, the hype phase for the release of Godzilla X-Kong, The New Empire. And, uh, of course, any other news that uh, that comes down the pipe. So I hope everyone will come back and join us for that. Again, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter slash X. Go search Earth Destruction Directive on YouTube, and you can find us there. And please come back next time when we'll be talking about Mystery of Ultra 7 from Marvel Comics. Thanks, everybody, once again. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. 
All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.